This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is a very special collaboration episode. This is coming to you at the end of my 11th season in my off-season slot if you will and I'm joined by a couple of guests that you may be familiar with but you also may not. Please welcome to the show Mark and Bethan from Seeing Red. Welcome guys. Hello, Hi, thank, thank you for, you for having, having us. us. How the hell are you? We're yeah, all good, well, yeah. Thank you. How are you? Bit hungover. Oh. Hungover. Mark's hungover, <laughs> bless him. But yeah. yeah. I'm good. So what we're doing, as of recording, guys, so you know, I don't know what day this is right now because it's in the future, but right now it's the 12th of November and it's a Sunday morning. Mark is hanging. We've just recorded, oh, I've just recorded a story that's going on seeing red, which... Is that going to be out by the time mine? Is yours going out soon? Uh, it'll probably be out on the 14th, 14th of November, Wednesday. Ours comes out on the 15th of November, not the 14th. Ah, oh, 15th. Mm. My bad. For the sake of time travel, that one day doesn't matter, I'll be honest. No, that's so, true. <laughs> what I'm going to encourage you to do first is head over to Seeing Red, and my episode is number... 10 of season 10. Number 10 of season 10. Okay, so check out... Episode 10 of season 10, where I tell Mark and Bethan a true crime story. This is now the favour being returned. They are going to tell me a true crime story. But before we get there, for anyone that doesn't know who you guys are, do you want to just give us a little summary of seeing red and who the hell you two jokers are? Uh, that's rude. Uh, <laughs> so we are, we've been friends for, it's got to be 10 years, maybe more than that. Yeah, possibly more. Yeah, so we've known each other for ages. We've been co-hosting Seeing Red for five years now. We're over 200 episodes in. We started predominantly with UK crimes and now we kind of expand around the world, really. So we cover anything and everything, I suppose. So if my listeners went over to Seeing Red, what would their expectation be? What's their takeaway from your show? What are you hoping listeners come away thinking about Seeing Red? We um, usually get nice feedback about the fact that the pair of us are quite respectful. Um, we try and focus on the victims of the cases that we cover and that our listeners do, we really genuinely feel like our listeners are like friends to us and the pair of us talking, hopefully they'll enjoy the kind of camaraderie and the friendship between us two as well. And yeah, hopefully really respectful. We That's kind of one of our key things, isn't it, Mark? We want to make sure that we're yeah. being as nice as possible. Cool. So how this works, I believe, is sometimes Mark tells a story, sometimes Bethan tells a story. That's right, isn't it? So this week we have Mark telling a story, and it looks like... We're not in Britain, by the way, so when I have guests come on, they're free to tell a story wherever they want in the world. All bets are off. This is an off-season kind of a bonus episode in my usual Thursday slot. But Mark's going to tell us an episode, and basically I'm going to hand it over to you, mate. Thank you. Yeah, I did. Um, I should have probably checked whether we could go to Central America, which is what we're going to do for this episode. So yeah, very conscious that uh, your show is British Murders, and this is possibly not murder, and certainly not British. But um, but here we go. <laughs> well so done, this week, Mark. Yeah, know. exactly. You know. <laughs> this does remind me of when we were a UK true crime podcast, and then every <laughs> yeah. once in a while you try and sneak in a case and you'd be like, but the victim's sister auntie twice removed was british and i'm like that's not good enough <laughs> and then we just changed in the it end to we, go just everywhere. Scrapped, we scrapped that we just yeah. go all around we do so this week we are taking our first ever trip to central america we've never been there before on our show as we explore a deeply frightening and mysterious missing persons case that many people believe was the result of foul play I would say this case is a head scratcher, but actually it's more of a head fucker because there's so much misinformation. There's so much irrelevant information in this story. There's lots of conflicting reports. You have a whole army of web sleuths. You name it, really. It's quite a messy case. So it's one you're probably going to have to 
follow pretty closely. This is one of the cases that I am absolutely fascinated by. So I'm really, really pleased that you're covering this because since I first saw images, which I don't want to give away too much in case people don't know the case, but when I first saw certain images, it's just absolutely gripped me. So I'm excited to hear your take on this. I think it will prompt a a lot of discussion amongst us during the episode and and also from our listeners as well. Well, not our listeners, Stuart's listeners. Stuart's listeners. Our listeners will be over here too. They'll be our listeners once you've nicked them off me. We'll nick them all. (laughs) We will. So Panama is a Central American country known for its iconic Panama Canal, a vital waterway which connects the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Panama is also well known for its diverse natural landscapes, which encompass tropical rainforests, lush mountains and pristine beaches. Its cosmopolitan capital, Panama City, juxtaposes modern skyscrapers with historic colonial architecture, while indigenous cultures thrive in remote regions, contributing to the nation's rich cultural tapestry. So it really is, I've never been, I don't know if you've been, Stuart, but it really is an amazing place. Sounds lovely. It does, doesn't it? Panama is, of course, a popular destination and a notorious stop-off point for backpackers travelling the famous Pan-American Highway. So that is a popular route made up of a network of roads that span across the Americas and they connect various countries from North America to South America. While travelling in this region can be, and usually is, a fun and rewarding experience, the South and Central American continents as a whole are considered to be pretty high-risk destinations. And that's due to a combination of factors, really. So the high crime rates, the political instability in some of the countries, the limited access to healthcare and emergency services, as well as many natural hazards like hurricanes, earthquakes, tropical diseases, and even just the wildlife can be pretty problematic over there. So, yeah, it's, it is this amazing place, but it does certainly come with its fair share of hazards. Whilst many parts of these regions are safe and offer enriching experiences, travellers are always advised to research thoroughly, to stay informed about the local conditions and to exercise extreme caution and to follow recommended safety guidelines. So I just kind of put that in because obviously we have to do a public service announcement because Bethan likes to do that. We like to help people be as safe as they possibly can. You never know when one of the listeners is planning to go to Panama, so... Somebody could be there right now listening, yeah. We're here to talk about uh, two women. They were Dutch women, so that's Chris Kremers and Lizanne Froon, both in their early 20s, and they visited Panama for a six-week vacation together in early 2014. As childhood friends who'd grown up in the same town in the Netherlands, this trip was a huge deal for them. Both women worked for six months at a cafe to save for their big Panamanian adventure and they were beyond excited to explore the region. They were hoping to learn Spanish by immersion, to carry out some voluntary work for several charitable organisations as well. Both women were considered to be intelligent, responsible and conscientious. They were both well educated and from happy and stable backgrounds. Chris Kremers was born on the 9th of August in 1992 in Amersfoort in the Netherlands. She grew up in a close-knit family and was described as an adventurous and outgoing person. She had a strong interest in sports and she loved to travel. Chris had studied psychology at the University of Utrecht and had plans to continue her studies in that field. Lisanne Froon was born on the 8th of September in 1991 also in Amersfoort. She also came from a loving family and was known for her positive and cheerful personality. Lizanne was pursuing studies in applied sciences and she was passionate about social work and helping others. Like Chris, she too had a passion for travelling and exploring new cultures. Chris and Lizanne arrived in Panama to begin their six-week adventure on the 15th of March in 2014. The first two weeks of their travels were spent doing all of the normal touristy stuff that Panama has to offer. They visited the tropical paradise islands of Bocas del Toro in the north before arriving 150 miles south in Boquette, a picturesque town nestled in the highlands of Panama that sits on the well-known Pan-American Highway which we mentioned earlier. It's also well known for its stunning natural beauty, its mild climate and its vibrant expat and backpacker community. Situated in the Chiriqui province of Panama, 
Baquette is surrounded by lush mountains, coffee plantations and cocaine plantations, making it a popular destination for ecotourism, cocaine binges and outdoor activities such as hiking and bird watching. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I, I don't know if they're actually cocaine plantations, but all of the leaves, the coca, coca leaves that they use to make cocaine, they, they are heavily farmed over there. The town's charming atmosphere with its colourful houses, its local markets and its proximity to the Baru Volcano National Park attracts tourists seeking both relaxation and adventure. Chris and Lizanne were staying at a popular family-run backpacker hostel named Spanish by the River. Now, some reports suggest they were actually staying with a host family. And I think the truth is actually somewhere in between the two. So I think it was kind of like a family-run hostel, but it was, it was certainly done as a business proposition. The owner of this hostel, or whatever it was, would later recall having Chris and Lizanne as guests, and she described them as being polite, intelligent and sociable girls who got along with everybody, and she said they didn't cause any problems while they stayed with her. A few days after checking into the hostel, Chris and Lizanne decided to go on a hike. Both women were young and fit and in good physical shape, so they wanted a hike that was moderately challenging, but equally one that wasn't too extreme or dangerous. After briefly researching the area, they decided to attempt the well-known El Pianista Trail. The El Pianista Trail in Panama is a captivating and challenging hiking route, renowned for its stunning natural beauty and diverse ecological landscapes. Nestled within the lush expanse of the Soberania National Park, the trail winds through dense tropical rainforests along crystal clear streams and up towards rugged terrain. Named after an elusive pianist who was said to play in the heart of the jungle, which I loved, whether this is true or not, who knows, the trail provides a challenging but memorable experience for nature enthusiasts and hikers seeking to connect with Panama's remarkable wilderness. It sounds incredible. I'll just picture a pianist in the middle of the forest with a grand piano. Yeah, I don't like that. I feel like that's like a dead person like a ghost playing piano or something i'm not a fan of that i call it a forest it's really jungle as well so if i yeah it kind of um brings about connotations of of some kind of ghostly being playing the piano and probably somebody that got lost in the jungle never to return so yeah strong echoes of what's about to happen i'll tell you what's great about this mark is whilst i'm for those listening i'm following through on the script that mark sent me also what do you mean, script? This is all memorised. Of course it is. All, yeah, I'm not he is an behind actor, the curtain. thank you very much. <laughs> of course he is. He memorised it all. What I love is that all these place names, and this is a reason why covering somewhere out of Britain is a bit terrifying because I don't know how to say half the stuff. The amount of abuse I get for saying Welsh place names wrong and Scottish ones as well is a joke, but some people find it funny. What I like about this is when you're pronouncing stuff, you don't even put in brackets how to say it. You just know how to say it. All my scripts have a place name and then in brackets, a phonetically broken down way of how to say it. Maybe you're just far more intelligent than me. Oh, d- definitely not the case. I, um, <laughs> To be honest, I just kind of go with it and usually await the abuse that that usually follows. So we'll, we'll see uh, what happens. Maybe you'll get the abuse because it's your show. Hopefully that's how it will work. I don't think that's how it works, mate. I'll oh, be okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so the El Pianista trailhead is easy to reach via public transport, and the hike itself is just shy of five miles long. Due to the rough terrain, intense jungle heat, and narrow pathways, the hike typically takes the average person about three and a half hours. So it's a pretty decent trek. It's not for the faint hearted. You've got to be pretty fit for it. It is five miles long, and if you were walking that on the flat, you'd probably do it in an hour and a half. So the fact that it's normally three and a half hours says that it's, it's not the easiest of treks. Online reviews from hikers who have walked the trail in the past describe it as moderately challenging. Others have also commented that El Pianista is very muddy, especially around the summit, and that there are aggressive dogs and unsavoury locals wandering around. Furthermore, the tropical climate in Central America is known to be unpredictable and extreme. So one minute you can be sunning yourself on the beach, the next you find yourself running to escape a torrential rainstorm. For these reasons, among many others, tourists are urged never to walk the El Pianista Trail alone or without an experienced local guide who speaks a local language and knows the local customs. 
Like many tourists, however, and definitely like I would have been, Lizanne and Chris failed to take these warnings seriously, and very sadly, they woefully underestimated the risks that lay ahead. Lizanne and Chris decided to hike the El Pianista Trail all alone with no guide. They figured that the hike would be easy and quick, so they packed light for it, filling just one backpack with only meagre food and water supplies. I think it was just a 500ml bottle of water between the two of them, which sounds absolutely crazy. Even if you're not hiking, just sitting around for three and a half hours, I'd want more water than that. I'm always drinking loads of water. Yeah, it's tropical heat, it's, yeah, the humidity is crazy. Maybe they were out the previous night having a few drinks as well. Um, Yeah, they they clearly had underestimated the the challenges of this track. They also, uh, so as well as the the water and some kind of meagre food supplies, there were a few other personal items that they took with them. So they took a camera, they took their phones, two bikini tops, Lisanne's passport and around $80 in cash. At around 11am on the 1st of April, Lizanne and Chris took a taxi to the trailhead. Now, there are conflicting reports that they took a dog with them on this hike, a dog that belonged to the owner of a restaurant at the trailhead. That's never been definitively confirmed. That This is where there's just so much confusion in this story. Oh, I'd never heard of that bit before. So many conflicting accounts. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to assume that they did take this dog because it, it does form a semi-important part of the story a bit later on. So I think they possibly did. Why they decided to do that, I don't know. But I think they'd eaten at a restaurant. They'd eaten at that restaurant before they started the hike and maybe they became acquainted with the dog and thought, yeah, let's take it for a walk. Who knows? Chris and Lizanne made impressive progress on the trail. As two young and athletic women, I, th- I feel like I've sort of really laboured that point, so I'm sorry for uh, saying that so much, but they, they walked at an even pace, they stuck to the path, and they managed to navigate the rough and hazardous terrain with relative ease, and actually just two hours after starting their walk, they had reached the summit. So pretty impressive if you think about it. It's five miles. It's, yeah, it's a rough terrain that they've navigated and they've got there in two hours. So super impressed. When they reached the summit, Lizanne set up her camera and the pair had a photo together with the beautiful panoramic mountain view from the top of the pianista stretched out behind them. At this point, the two women should have returned via the same route. That was the original plan anyway, but sadly, that's not what they did. They decided to go further and deeper into the jungle that lay beyond the Pianista summit. This would see them take a very sketchy trail, and one that is scarcely ever used because it's known to be dangerous, especially during the rainy season from April to October, so this is taking place on April the 1st. We may never know whose idea it was to leave the beaten track that day, or if either of the women stopped to consider the inherent dangers that lay beyond the summit. Maybe there was a brief argument between the two with one wanting to head back, the other wanting to go on. Who knows? Either way, this single decision to carry on that day would have fatal consequences for both women. As the hours passed and darkness fell, the restaurant owner whose dog the girls had taken with them was surprised to see it return without them. There was no sign of Chris or Lizanne. The restaurant owner wasn't necessarily too concerned about this. He didn't contact the authorities. And I think that's kind of fair because he probably just assumed that they'd gone back to their hostel or whatever. The following day, on the 2nd of April, Lizanne and Chris had pre-booked a guided hike of the jungles around Buket, but they had failed to turn up at the rendezvous point at the agreed time. So the guide visited a language school that he knew Chris and Lizanne were planning to volunteer at and he inquired as to their whereabouts. And from here, he visited the hostel where they had been staying and asked the owner if she had seen them and she hadn't. And she very quickly realised that actually she hadn't seen them since the previous day. She knew they had been planning on taking the El Pianista Trail. And fearing they might have got lost in the jungle, she hastily went to the police station to report them as missing. This must have just been frightening for her at this point to think, oh shit, you know, I knew what they were doing. They were going on this track. They're inexperienced. They're not from this area. They're possibly going to underestimate the jungle conditions. And they've not been back. They've actually not returned. So it's logical to assume at this point that, yeah, they're they're missing. They're lost in the jungle. 
And I think you'd feel some sort of responsibility for them as well, even though it's they're not your responsibility, they're adults. But you would, you'd feel some sort of responsibility that you had, you know, helped them set up different elements of their holiday. These girls were quite well liked and they were getting on with everybody. It must have been really awful. And that feeling of dread when you just kind of go, oh my God, have they gone missing? Have they been injured? What's gone on? Yeah, I think it's that. Because also, I think, I feel like the the hostel owner would have had the measure of the two of them. So she knew that they were these lovely, polite young women and that they probably wouldn't go out and not come back and go out partying and be turning up looking a mess the next day. So she probably was thinking, yeah, this is actually, even though I don't know them that well, from the little time I've spent with them so far, this is out of character. So that leads me to believe that this is the most likely scenario that's at play here. I wonder how often this happens, you know, tourists, backpackers going to these countries that are popular with that community and disappearing. I bet it happens all the time. I think it does. And that there are a lot of anecdotal cases and there are particularly of uh, backpackers going missing in this area that has happened. So, yeah, I think it probably does happen an awful lot. Now, to the police's credit, they initially took the report very seriously and showed genuine concern for Chris and Lizanne's safety. Even though the Buquette police force is far from adequately resourced, the chief of police put together a search team consisting of several police officers, a pretty decent number of local volunteers, I think possibly about two dozen, as well as a tour guide who knew the jungle well. So this was this search party was very quickly established and it was a big search party. Initially, a small-scale search was launched to look for Lisanne and Chris. The search team walked the El Pianista Trail, calling the girls' names and scanning the surrounding jungle for any sign of them, but actually it was as if they had vanished into thin air. Over the next couple of days, helicopters were launched, but the jungle was too dense to see through the fauna and leaves and stuff. And actually, they couldn't launch the helicopter very early on because of the weather conditions. It was adverse weather. So, you know, they really were doing everything they could to try and locate these two young women. Three days after Lizanne and Chris's disappearance was reported, their distraught families travelled to Panama along with a team of Dutch detectives to assist the Panamanian police with their search efforts. And I just can't imagine what would have been going through their minds right now. They'd have been worried about their daughters heading to a foreign country totally different culture, nearly halfway across the world. And they would have played through all these kind of nightmare scenarios in their head. And now that nightmare's becoming a reality. And I think, you know, the minute you have to set foot on a plane to head to that country, that it's serious. You're not going to do that unless you're seriously worried. So it would have been horrific for them. However, despite the best efforts of the search teams, which involved endlessly looking through the jungle for days on end, there was still no trace of Chris or Lizanne, even with the help of these Dutch detectives and Chris and Lizanne's parents. A week passed, and by now the police and local volunteers had begun to lose faith. They knew that two young women lost in the harsh and unforgiving conditions of the Panamanian jungle stood very little chance of survival. The jungles of Panama are home to a variety of wildlife, some of which can be extremely dangerous. Venomous snakes and poisonous spiders, like the Brazilian wandering spider, can pose a real threat to hikers. The jungle climate can be unforgiving too. Rapid changes in the weather, including heavy rainfall and sudden storms, can lead to flash floods, making trails slippery and navigation challenging. Extreme humidity and high temperatures can contribute to heat-related illnesses if proper precautions aren't taken too. And there were, again, it is sketchy, but there were absolutely reports that Lizanne wasn't very well in the days leading up to this hike and that she developed a bit of a cough and that the two young women had visited a pharmacy in the local area to get some medication for her. So it's possible that Lizanne was already under the weather. You're not selling me going to Panama, Mark, I'll be honest. Well, I started off well. It started off sounding like uh, we were being sponsored by the Panamanian Tourist Board. But yeah, now it's, um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's an inhospitable, inhospitable environment, isn't it? You know, this is a jungle and I think people forget that. I think it's that's it. It's a jungle. There's not much more you can really say, is that it is a jungle. So the thing is as well, I, I can't speak for, you know, the Netherlands, but here, I'll go on a hike with my mate and you go up a mountain or a a large hill. 
the worst animals you have to worry about are sheep and cows. Yeah. That's not walking through a fucking rainforest, a jungle where there's animals there whose sole purpose is to kill you. That would not appeal to me at all doing that. No, you're invading their space. It's it's surroundings that you would never have encountered before. You've only going to have seen that replicated on a Hollywood film set. They definitely, like most tourists, probably underestimated the, the harsh conditions of the jungle. Now, whilst rare, encounters with large predators like jaguars can also occur in the Panamanian jungle. Jaguars are apex predators and have the ability and willingness to attack and kill humans if threatened or provoked. In areas near bodies of water, especially rivers and mangrove swamps, there's also the possibility of encountering crocodiles and alligators, as well as giant anacondas. These conditions and these factors are just a few of the issues, really, that made any chance of these two women being found alive look hopelessly bleak. You know, this is just really worrying conditions, and they are lost in this jungle at this point. Naturally, however, Chris and Lizanne's family members were far less willing to admit defeat, and they pleaded to stay in Panama in order to continue the search for their daughters for as long as it took. Between searches, they appealed to the local Baquette community for help, and the locals obliged, and the family were assisted by a steady rotation of kind-hearted volunteers who worked tirelessly to find these two women. A long and tiring ten weeks came and went, but with no results. The hopes of ever seeing their beloved daughters alive again were now hanging by a thread. Then, in early June, a woman from Alta Romero, a tribal community about 10 miles from Paquette, came forward with a blue backpack that she had found in a rice paddy just off the banks of the Caldera River. And this is where the mind-bending mystery of this case really begins. The community of Alta Romero is extremely isolated, so much so that it can't even be found on modern online maps. It's like a tribal community, essentially. The woman who had come forward was married to a farmer and had been working the rice paddy every day for several weeks, and she insisted that there was simply no way that the backpack could have been sitting there for that long before she'd discovered it. She said that she'd been to that very spot almost every single day for weeks and weeks, and that there was no backpack there. She was convinced that the backpack had been deliberately abandoned on her rice paddy, and that it had been abandoned very recently. And I kind of totally believe her, because... She's tending to that rice paddy every day. It's a blue backpack. It's not a colour that's replicated in nature. And it would have stood out. And yeah, you know, she's going to know that she didn't see that on the previous days and weeks. And she's going to know that she's damn well seen it now. And that's the first time that it was there. And if this wasn't strange enough, there was more to come. Over the previous four weeks, Panama had experienced almost daily bouts of heavy torrential rain, which had greatly hampered the search efforts. If the backpack had been out in the open for that long, it would have undoubtedly have been soaked through and in a worn and weathered state. However, this was not the case at all. The backpack and its entire contents was in perfect condition and completely bone dry. There was no sign of any water damage. It was so well preserved that both the Dutch and Panamanian investigators agreed that it must have been kept indoors all this time. So that's kind of like two months, essentially. The backpack contained two pairs of sunglasses, $83 in cash, two bikini tops, the ones we mentioned earlier, a water bottle, two phones, Lisanne's passport and a camera. So pretty much all of the belongings that these two women had taken with them on that trek two months earlier. Lisanne's parents confirmed that the bag did indeed belong to their daughter. For detectives, the discovery of the backpack was not the breakthrough that they were hoping for though. If anything, it just raised more questions, like how on earth did the bag even end up there to begin with? To get to Alta Romero from El Pianista, where the girls had vanished, one would have to endure a nightmarishly long and arduous 10-mile hike through dense and dangerous jungle. There is no established path or walking trail that connects the two locations, and the terrain is so rough and unstable that even an experienced hiker would struggle with it. However, for the girls' families, the discovery breathed fresh hope and enthusiasm into their search efforts, and they hastily rushed over to Alta Romero to continue their search. Meanwhile, Dutch detectives in Baquette began examining the backpack and its contents for clues. In no time at all, they had made some truly unsettling discoveries. The story will continue after these quick messages. 
And now, back to the story. On Lizanne's digital camera, a Canon PowerShot SX270, Dutch investigators found a total of 133 images the young women had taken during their hike. The first 43 shots were typical photos and selfies that the girls had taken in the daylight hours as they walked the Alpianista Trail. The last of these initial 43 shots showed Lizanne and Chris posing at that summit, looking happy, healthy and proud of their accomplishment. The digital timestamp showed that these 43 happy images were all taken on April the 1st, when the women had left for their hike, and nothing about them led police to become suspicious. However, as the detectives continued to scroll through the pictures, things took a sinister turn. The remaining 90 photos weren't only mysterious, but they were also decidedly scary. The other photos had been taken in the depths of the night between 1.29am and 4.10am on the 8th of April, a full week after Lizanne and Chris had left the safety of Baquette to walk the Elpianista Trail. The photos, which have since been released into the public domain, you can view all of those online, I think pretty much all of them, show the girls' belongings spread out on rocks. There are also strange pictures of plastic bags and candy wrappers that have been laid out on the ground. Other pictures show oddly piled mounds of dirt, a mirror, and most concerning of all, the back of Chris Kremer's head with blood leaking from her temple. None of the photos showed the women's faces. Lisanne isn't pictured at all, and as I said, it's only the back of Chris's head that is pictured in one of the shots. So you can't say for sure who took these photos, whether it was the two women. You can't say for sure that Chris was alive in that photo, which featured the back of her head. But I suppose logically, if we look at it logically, it would make sense that they were alive at this point, that Chris had probably been injured quite badly, and that maybe Lizanne was photographing this injury in order to examine it, because it's pitch black, maybe when this injury has, has occurred, and yeah, she's going to use the flash of the camera to take a photo, and that's going to enable her to zoom in on that, and it's bright, and she can see exactly the extent of the injury. So if they were both alive at this point, or even if just one of them was alive... It's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Because even if they hadn't come to harm as a result of a third party, which we'll come to shortly, they were lost deep in the Panamanian jungle and had been for at least a week at this point. It's just, yeah, it just gives you that feeling of dread, doesn't it? Of like, they've obviously taken a wrong turn at some point and then it's eight days later. Makes you wonder what they survived on, because it makes sense about the wound, right? Because you can't see it and you want to get an image of it. But the rest of the pictures just sound so bizarre. I'll come on to uh, the rationale behind some of the other pictures that were taken, because lots of the pictures were just kind of black and appeared to just be of the women taking photos of the night sky. So we will talk about that. But yeah, it's. Um, I think we all... It resonates, doesn't it, with, with every single one of us, everybody listening, because we can all remember a time when we've been lost, maybe when we were a child or driving in a car before the days of sat-navs, and it's a real sense of panic like no other, or if you have lost your child temporarily. We've talked about that, Bethan, on, on our show, uh, in cases of missing children. It's, yeah, it's just a panic like no other. I also, part of the... um the kind of theories behind this is were these photos taken by them or were they taken by someone else and that always gives you that horrible feeling as well of like why are their belongings being laid out whether it's them or not and then the fact that they didn't leave with very much water or food I think I said before it was eight days later I misunderstood because it was on the eighth so it's like a week later but would they have been able to survive that long because they didn't have much food and water if they were surviving, then perhaps they're getting delirious. And that's why the photos that they're taking are weird. And maybe they're trying to sort of like highlight where they are so that if someone found their camera, they could find them or something like that. None of it. There's just no, for me, no real answer. It's just so many what ifs. 
Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It, it could be a third party that was taking these photographs. We don't know that Chris is alive in that photo of the back of her head and and the wound. Um, so it could have been somebody else. They could have come to harm, and we'll we'll cover that and talk about that uh, shortly. But yeah, it's um, there's a lot of questions to this. There's more questions than answers, which I know is frustrating. Normally on Seeing Red, we do cover cases that are fully solved and there is a, a satisfying conclusion. But yeah, there, there possibly isn't in, in this case. So some of the remaining 90 images, as I said, are just black and it appears as if the camera was pointing upwards towards the pitch darkness of the night sky. Now, investigators would later theorise that the girls were not taking photos of the sky, but that they were instead using the camera's flash to signal for help, which kind of makes sense, or more disturbingly, to ward off a predator. So if you think about this, these jungle conditions, you've got panthers, jaguars, all sorts in there. So a flash could potentially be used in that way, kind of makes sense. It could have been to see where they were going. You know, you see in films where... I think in the Saw films, one of the guys takes photos to light up the room so he knows where he's going. Yeah, there's a lot of, I guess, like the flash is quite helpful in a lot of scenarios. And this, as I said, you know, absolutely could have been a third party. We'll, we'll look at that theory shortly. But actually, there are other clues that these two women were alive at, at the point in time when these other photos were happening from the 8th of April. So I will get to that too. Perhaps the biggest and most worrisome mystery about the camera is what Dutch detectives would later refer to as Missing Photo 509, a deleted image that was removed from the camera right between the daytime photos being taken on the 1st of April when the women commenced their hike and the nighttime photos commencing on the 8th of April. So the camera wasn't, apart from this Missing Photo 509, the camera wasn't used between the 1st of April and the 8th of April. So that's an entire week that these two women are supposed supposedly missing in this jungle and they have not been using the camera for any purpose to document what's happening to use the flash as a way of navigating or, or signaling for help so that's suspicious as well that's just so weird isn't it so this missing photo 509 had been permanently deleted meaning there's no way to retrieve it Due to the significance in its placing in the sequence, the missing image could have given the investigators a lot of answers because it it would have filled in that gap, that gap of a week. Even though it's only one shot, it, it would have alluded to maybe what was happening in that time. Sadly, however, the Dutch police were unable to retrieve the deleted data. And I think it had not just been deleted, it had been kind of deleted and deleted again. As the police and Paquette were scratching their heads over the strange photos, Dutch detectives managed to gain access to the girls' mobile phones, which had been discovered in the backpack. What they discovered further deepened the mystery, and this is where it gets just really weird for me. In another disturbing twist, detectives soon discovered that Lisanne and Chris had tried to contact the emergency services at 4.39pm on the 1st of April. Now, that was just about three hours after they'd photographed themselves at that summit of El Pianista. And this isn't disturbing in itself. You know, you can kind of presume the two women were indeed lost at this point, but all is not lost, no pun intended. But there were many more attempts made over the following days to call the emergency services from both Chris and Lizanne's phones. Bad cell reception made it practically impossible to get through, though, except for a single call that connected for just over two seconds before cutting out. So it is likely that they were both alive several days after entering that jungle. You've got these photos being taken from the 8th of April. Might have been there, might not. But their phones are being used to try and call the emergency services. And that actually goes on up until the 11th of April. So 10 days after entering that jungle. That is just scary, isn't it? It's just horrible, horrible to think of. Yeah. On April the 6th, Lizanne's Samsung phone turned off for the last time when the battery ran out. Chris's iPhone was turned on and off over several more days, maybe to save battery and to check connection to contact police and to get help. However, strangely, between April the 7th and April the 10th, dozens of unsuccessful attempts were made to access Chris's iPhone. So it required two PIN numbers and the wrong number was entered like dozens of times. 
The person always entered the wrong pin, which would make little sense if it was Chris trying to get access as it was her phone. So perhaps Chris was incapacitated at this point, maybe from that head wound and Lizanne was trying to guess the code. Or was it someone else entirely? Yeah, but also maybe she was just disorientated and I type my pin number in wrong sometimes and I've not got a reason. I've just got fat fingers. So like if she's not drunk enough water and she's just her mind spinning. But would the inhabitants of this jungle, you know, you mentioned that it was a tribe, right, that that found this backpack. Would they know what an iPhone is? Would they know to try and put a pin in? That doesn't make too much sense. No, the the tribe's people were a decent stretch away from where the two women were lost initially. And there were other people that were inhabiting the jungle that absolutely would have known what an iPhone was. And I'll I'll come on to that. But yeah, you you do get not drug traffickers, but drug cartels operating in, in those jungles and farming the coca leaves to turn into cocaine. Chris's phone ran out of battery on the 11th of April and that was the last day that attempts were made to unlock it and attempts were made to contact the emergency services. So yeah, this is 10 days after they'd entered that jungle. The Panamanian police headed to Alta Romero and extensively searched the area where the rice farmer had found the backpack. They found more evidence that seemed to prove that the girls had been there at some point. Several items of Chris's clothes were found along the river. Then, as the police advanced further down the river, more than two months after the girl's disappearance, the first human remains were discovered. A foot inside a shoe was found, as well as a pelvic bone. Both were found next to the river, not far from where Chris's clothes had been found. And over the days that followed, more bones were discovered. I think in total it was something like 31, and it represented in total about 10% of two human skeletons. DNA analysis of the remains confirmed everyone's worst fears. The remains belonged to Chris Kremers and Lizanne Froon. The shoe with the bones turned out to be what was left of Lizanne's left foot. Forensic examination showed that there were no signs of cutting, teeth or claw imprints and no blood was left anywhere. What remained was some skin and tissue. The discovery of the remains raised even more questions in the rapidly evolving mystery. So you can't even say that, well, this foot has been severed because, you know, very sadly, this corpse has been rotting and animals have got to it because there is no evidence of that. There's no teeth or claw marks. There's no animal DNA found on it. So it's not consistent with with something like a jaguar attacking it. After forensic analysis, it appeared that the bodies were in different stages of decomposition too. So in Chris's case, her bones were bleached from long exposure to sunlight. However, Lizanne's remains still had a significant amount of skin and tissue attached. And this was a significant discovery because it meant that Chris almost certainly died long before Lizanne did. Lizanne survived alone for as long as she could before something happened that ended her life too. And I think that's just an awful thing to think, you know, maybe Chris did sustain quite a serious head wound, which ended her life. And Lizanne has gone to get help and got lost herself or remained with Chris, knowing her friend has died and knowing that maybe the same fate will befall her in just a matter of hours or days. It almost doesn't bear thinking about. I think as well, like the foot element, I remember reading somewhere about that apparently it's really common to find feet when somebody goes into water because the nature of the ball and socket joint of your ankle and the nature of heavy shoes on feet and stuff tends to mean that they do come separate quite easily. So potentially if she had hurt her head or in some way had fallen into water after dying or had been swept away for whatever reason, it isn't unusual for the foot to be separate. And actually, it's quite common for feet to wash up and no other bodies. Isn't that weird and creepy? But it makes sense because shoes are heavier and they're they're more likely to be buoyant. So the rest of the body might sink and then the shoe continues to float. But apparently, if you Google feet coming up on beaches, it's quite common. It kind of is uh, ringing a bell now. It and We've definitely covered cases, I'm sure, or we're aware of cases where feet have turned up. So, yeah, it's, um, you know, certainly the, I'll come on to that theory. It's a credible theory that some kind of accident caused her death and, you know, she'd fallen into water 
and the foot had, yeah, you know, it's awful to say, but had rotted and, and come away from the remainder of her skeleton. And that could potentially be why the decomposition was less. Maybe if the water had almost preserved some of her flesh a little more, whereas if she survived longer, but she survived outside, maybe. I don't know. When were the remains discovered? Because this is quite quick for decomposition if it was a couple of months, right? Am I being Yes, yeah, two months. Two I months. I don't know. Months. Out in the jungle, though, it's warm, isn't it? Yeah, the temperature's got to play a part if it's humid and hot as well. It Was it June, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. So whatever happened to the two women, unfortunately their exact cause of death could not be determined. The girls' heartbroken families gathered up what remained of their daughters and had them repatriated back to the Netherlands for a proper burial. The Panamanian government did not continue the investigation and stated publicly that the deaths were the result of an accident. However, there are many theories that contradict the government's claim. The tragic case of Chris Kramers and Lisanne Froon remains a hot topic, especially amongst the online armchair detective community, which sadly we're going to become a part of because we're going to talk about our theories in a second. Whilst the official cause of death in Panama is still the result of an unfortunate accident, the online social commentary sits overwhelmingly in the foul play camp. So what exactly happened out there in that jungle? We're going to try and pick apart some of these theories now. The Panamanian government are convinced that the young women were swept away by the river after attempting to cross it via a monkey bridge. However, given all of the other variables that factor into this case, such a verdict makes little sense really. For one, the attempted calls to emergency services show that the two women urgently needed help. We know from looking at the mysterious photos that Chris likely sustained a serious head injury. We do not know if she was conscious or even alive when that photo was taken. It's possible that Lisanne may have tried to go and seek help. And this scenario would loosely explain why Chris's phone had been under repeated attempts to unlock it without success. Therefore, it's unlikely that they fell from the bridge at the same time. And we have got this different state of decomposition in both bodies and the remains are found in the same location. Bearing in mind the fact that the girls were woefully ill-equipped and had close to no food or water with them, their situation would have become critical very early on. Despite this, we know from the digital evidence on their phones and on the camera, we can actually assume both of them, or at least one of them, survived for up to 10 days in that jungle. Regardless of what happened, the girls would have been hungry, cold, wet, exhausted, possibly injured and unimaginably afraid. Their fear would have only been worsened by a magnitude 6 earthquake that occurred on the 2nd of April in that area. So just when you think things can't get any worse, and then don't forget the weather conditions are appalling there as well. Jeez, this is, yeah, it just, you're just thinking it can't get worse, and then an earthquake, which I don't know much about the Netherlands and whether or not they would ever have experienced something like that. But I, for example, would that would be an absolutely terrifying thing to be a part of, even if I was somewhere that I felt safe and secure, let alone lost in a jungle to then experience an earthquake. And that's a pretty decent earthquake, magnitude six. And yeah, that's occurring on literally 24 hours after they find themselves lost in that jungle, which is absolutely what happened initially. But the question really is what happened to them between the 1st of April and the 8th of April? How could they survive for so long with such limited supplies in such dangerous surroundings? And then from phone data, we know Lisanne's phone dies on the 4th of April, but Chris's phone survives much longer and there are repeated periodic searches for signal, but the phone then also weirdly isn't used on the 7th, 8th or 9th or 10th of April before then being turned on again on the 11th of April. So... It, it's just weird. We've got this whole kind of seven days where nothing's really happening. The phones are being turned on a bit. Um, there's attempt to contact emergency services. But also, if that is a third party, that's not going to be a third party attempting to contact the emergency services on these two women's phones. That makes no sense. I agree. I'd, unless they were some kind of Samaritan. Yeah. And they'd found the two women and were trying to call for help themselves. But it just doesn't make sense. So I think it's safe to assume that one or both of them were absolutely alive up until at least the 11th of April when the last attempt was made 
it was on Chris's phone to unlock it and to contact the emergency services. So, yeah, it does beg that question. That's 10 days. How did they survive in the jungle in those conditions with basically no food? Probably, you know, within a few hours, they've run out of food, they've run out of water. How have they survived that? And then weirdly, there are... There are reports, there's no hard evidence of this, that the girls were spotted getting into the car, uh, into a car at the trailhead of the, the trek a bit later on the 1st of April, so that they'd done the trek and they did head back, and then they found themselves back in the jungle. It's messy. As mentioned earlier, many people remain convinced that Lisanne and Chris fell victim to a murderer. They base this on clues they claim to see in photos. In one photo showing a steep cliff, there is the allegation that a person is in the shadows, but this can't be verified as the image quality is pretty poor. And I think this is where people really clutch at straws. They've tried to analyse these photos. And lots of people say that the photos, even those initial 43 photos that were documenting the girls' hike, it was all during the good times, up until they reached the summit... People are saying that it's weird, you know, halfway through the photos take a a dark turn and they can see pained, bizarre expressions in the faces of Lisanne and Chris. So, uh, you know, I can't really see that when I've looked at the photos. It just looks like two young women on a hike, taking selfies, taking photos of each other, having a good time. So it all looks pretty normal until we then get to the photos that were taken from the 8th of April. I also find like some of the photos where people say that they see a shadow or they see a figure or they see something. I look and I'm like, I can't see anything. I feel like you can see what you want to see sometimes. And a shadow can look like anything if you're in the right frame of mind to be freaked out by the idea of something. And on that note of shadows, there's people that have analysed those photographs documenting the hike and they've looked at the timeline and they've looked at the shadows and the kind of trajectory of the shadows and they've said well that can't be at one o'clock for example because the sun would have been here and the shadow would have pointed in that direction so people have really gone to town on this and and looked at it in detail but it's pretty definitive the timeline and the photos were time stamped and they were time stamped with the wrong time but that was because the time had been set to Greenwich Mean Time with that model so when they tracked it in accordance with that it did show that for example the the two women had reached that summit at about one o'clock in the afternoon on the 1st of April. Right. I'm just looking here. There's a website here on imperfectplan.com. You've probably looked at it. It's a deep analysis of these photos. If anyone wants to look into it, it really goes into depth about the adjustment levels they've done and trying to further clarify the image quality because most of them are black. But if you raise the brightness and stuff, you can kind of see little bits what baffles me though is after they took all these photos the camera was then in theory put back in the bag because it was found in the bag wasn't it so did someone take the bag after finding it and then figure there was nothing worth taking and just dump it somewhere or was it a killer trying to take away the evidence but then again why dump it why not destroy it or keep it do you know what i mean And I think if somebody did come across that bag and wanted to take the contents, the contents was worth taking. There was $83 in cash in there, the camera, two phones, loads of stuff that they would have absolutely taken. So, yeah, it's just really puzzling. And the more puzzling question is how the backpack appeared suddenly after many weeks. Because don't forget, it was intact, it was bone dry, and it didn't show any signs of weathering or of any damage. If the girls had fallen in the river and been swept away, as the Panamanian government claims, then surely the bag would have been in a much worse condition. However, if the girls did not fall in the river and get swept all the way down to Alta Romero, then how on earth did the bag get there? The foul play theory might also explain the Panamanian government's controversial decision to not investigate the girls' disappearance. Some claims state that this decision was motivated by the fact that the country relies on heavy tourism, backpackers, travellers, and it would have been a bad PR move to say that, yeah, we believe two tourists have come to harm as a result of a third party in our country. And sadly, we have seen that in a couple of episodes that we've covered. I'm thinking of Thailand, for example. There was a couple of different cases we've talked about. And also potentially Japan as well springs to mind where, you know, if tourism's that key and you 
don't want to put the resources into finding something that might you know put people off you may hope that it's quite goes quiet soon and you just don't make a big fuss about something but it also could be that you there is a cover-up but I always feel like that feels a little too far-fetched that the government would be involved in something that's going on in the jungle we do see it and people think oh it's the government they've got to be telling the truth and we all know that's not necessarily the case so yeah, it could have been a a way of them spinning it and a PR exercise to protect the tourism economy there that they're so heavily reliant upon. I just get that more if more often this happened, if more frequently it happened. But this is one of the few times that this is really, I mean, this is the only case around the area that is so unusual. There's no other cases that are linked with it. So it does feel more of like a one-off which you wouldn't expect the government to be. But would this be enough? This would be enough to put me off going there if I was looking at travelling. I I wouldn't really want to take that trail. So, yeah, I don't know. We're all different. Other internet commentators have suggested that the girls may have been lost at first and then become victims of foul play later on during the course of their fight for survival. It's no secret that drug cartels from Mexico and nearby Colombia use the jungles in Central America for cocaine production and they do not take kindly to uninvited guests. It's been suggested that there are at least a couple of coca plantations within a 10 mile radius of Alta Romero where the girls' remains were found. Therefore it seems logical that the girls, exhausted, injured and close to death, could have stumbled across a cartel, as crazy as that sounds, that's normal there, whom they begged for help but instead were met with violence and I think this is the most plausible scenario here and this reminds me of I'm going to pull it out the bag Beth and and if anyone's not familiar with seeing red we talk about this film all the time Eden Lake always mentioned always mentioned (laughs) have you seen it Stuart yeah I like it yeah it's a good film yeah brilliant film so I won't kind of bore the arse off your listeners and explain it Given the length of time that has since passed, coupled with the Panamanian government's ongoing refusal to carry out a proper investigation, the truth might never be known. And I just want to know what you two think, really. I think it's a combination. They've absolutely got lost at first. That is absolutely what's happened. I think at some point, 10, 12 days in, after the last attempt to unlock Chris's phone and contact the emergency services, because there was still 22% battery left in that phone at that time, and it was never used again. I think after that, I think they came to some harm as a result of third party. I think so. I think what's happened is, to basically to say what you've said in a different way, they've gone up the trail in the route they planned. Now, what will often happen If you go on a hike, again, I can only speak in the UK. If you go on a hike and you go one route one way, often you'll go another route on the way back just for something different. So they've probably gone up one route. Oh, it only took two hours. That didn't really see much. Should we try a different route on the way back? They've probably had a bit of a Barney about it. And in the journey of coming back down a different way, they've got lost, which in the jungle is easy as piss to do. And then I reckon at some point, the girl that got hurt her head is hurt her head somehow. Maybe they've fallen. The pictures of her head explain that for me. But to stay alive from the 1st to, what, the 8th or the even the 11th when the last calls were attempted, I think they've met someone who might have been friendly at first because she can't survive on 500 mil of water for almost two weeks. So they've obviously been kept alive somehow. You know, you could possibly do without food for that long, but water, there's just no way. So I reckon they've maybe come across someone who's either turned nasty or took them somewhere where the people they know have turned nasty and possibly they've been killed that way. Maybe they've been robbed of the backpack. That's how it's been taken away. Something's happened with the third party, though. I don't think this is just these two that have had an accident. It just doesn't make sense. They could have absolutely got to that summit at one o'clock on the 1st of April, elated. They've reached it in two hours. That was fun. Let's head back. They've gone back and that's kind of it. And then they've got into a car and there is a sighting of them getting into a car, but it's not verified and gone off and, yeah, met someone and come to harm that way. And then their remains have been dumped in Alta Romero along with the backpack. So, yeah. Bethan, what do you think? So I disagree. And I think that 
frustratingly, whilst I would love there to be um, a really horrendous, creepy sort of like theory behind it, I genuinely don't. I genuinely think that they just became delirious, became confused. I don't think that the car sighting was legitimate. I, I just don't find that credible for myself. And I think that they survived on the bare, you know, the bare minimum, you could maybe find some water that's clean enough because there's going to be some running water. It, it's a jungle. There's going to be something maybe survived off of like some random berries that you find. And I think that the backpack was probably found by somebody who didn't really know what it would have been or what it was. I think that's why it hadn't been ransacked. I think that's why it hadn't been gone through because if you were a third party, you might want to get rid of that phone, the camera or the phones, just in case there's something incriminating that you wouldn't know about. So I think that maybe somebody from a, a remote tribe had found that backpack and that's why it was placed, just put down, just, I don't know what this is. Maybe somebody who has more knowledge or um, kind of contact with the outside world will be able to deal with this. But I, I genuinely think that Chris died sooner and somehow ended up in water or something maybe in boggy areas or something like that and that's how her her remains were decomposed in a slightly different way and then I do then think Lizanne just from not having her friend not having any sort of way to go on she's tried that last time to use her phone and has has died kind of out in the open and I think that's where that disparity between the two body's decomposition has come in as well but yeah this case absolutely fascinates me because I do I did I did find it really intriguing all the photos and when I first saw the pictures and I've spent time looking at the photos trying to see if I can see them a shadowy figure or did someone pick them up in a car and then take them and then murder them but I just feel like there would be marks on bones or there would be some sort of evidence that they had come to foul play and from what I've read I don't think there is any evidence not that they can prove how they died but to prove that there was foul play in some way yeah i think it's equally as a legitimate scenario as to what happened here and it's so frustrating because we're never going to know what happened but Mm. i think it is probably safe to assume that whatever happened there were a number of days where they were absolutely lost in that jungle whether they then subsequently came to harm and i think that that thought is is what stays with me with this case and yeah it's just so incredibly sad that their short lives have come to such an abrupt and tragic end in such weird circumstances so especially after those initial photos where you see them so happy and smiling and they're proud and like you said stood there proud of their achievement so no matter what that's uh, like always my kind of takeaway is it's so heartbreaking that in such a, a short space of time, when when you think of it from our point of view, but actually it would have taken it would have felt like years to them. In those few days, it's turned on its head entirely. And to think what they would have gone through, even if it it ended in their starvation and dehydration, and and they just kind of died as a result of that, is still absolutely terrible to to think about it. So we will bring the episode to a close now. So the deaths of Chris Kremers and Lizanne Froon had a significant impact both on their families and also on the international community following this case. The mystery surrounding their disappearance and subsequent tragic discovery raised questions and concerns about travel safety and the circumstances, of course, the circumstances of their deaths. The case prompted discussions about the importance of preparedness and caution when exploring unfamiliar and remote areas, as well as the need for effective communication and emergency plans for travellers. Additionally, the incident led to increased awareness about the risks associated with solo or unguided travel, particularly in areas like this in, in the wilderness. Chris and Lizanne's families have been active in keeping their memories alive by raising awareness about travel safety. The families also established a foundation in their names to support local initiatives in Panama, which I loved, which focus on education and community projects. While the exact details of their final days remains a mystery, the tragic fate of Chris Kremers and Lizanne Froon serves as a sober reminder of the challenges and potential dangers that travellers can face, even in seemingly idyllic and remote locations. 
Thank you for that, Mark. That was uh, that was intense. He's poetic, isn't he? Just a bit. Oh, yeah. Thank you. High praise He's indeed. Got away with yeah. words. A real frustrating case and just incredibly sad, isn't it? Whatever happened, they they lost their lives. However, it happened. Yeah. If anyone listening wants to put their theories across, you can raise them to myself or to Mark and Bethan. But yeah, thank you for that. Really appreciate you coming on and telling my audience that story. Do you want to just let everyone know and remind them where they can find you? Point them to the your social medias, your Spotify's, your website. Here's your chance for a plug. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Threads. So search for Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. We also have a website, which is seeingredpodcast.co.uk. And if you want to listen to our show, you can search for us on anywhere you look for podcasts, really. We're on everywhere. Just search for Seeing Red True Crime Podcast and look for our little red logo with our lovely faces. Thank you for having us on the show. Yeah, we really thank enjoyed you so being much. guests. Thank you. No worries at all. So for everyone listening, I'll be back next week, probably, I think, with season 12, I believe. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed this off-season bonus collaboration special. And until next time, as we always say, cheerio.